There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and my throat is just about to make it over the finishing line for this week's show. Uh, The subject this week is free speech, and uh, I am only just capable of emitting any speech at all. Fortunately, my guest has plenty to say on the subject, and one of the things he does say involves a controversy to do with a theatre. Just a word going into the show that we have contacted the theatre and invited them to respond. And as of the time of broadcast, they have uh, not yet replied. Uh, If we do get a response from them, then we'll put it in the show notes on the Londonist site. For now, treat your ears to this week's episode and I'm going to treat my throat to a lemsip. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. start of this week's podcast finds us on the Farringdon Road and we're in a boardroom overlooking the Farringdon Road. With me is Robert Sharp, he is the communications director of the organisation that we have penetrated. Today it's English Pen. Hi Robert. Did you say penetrated on purpose? Uh, yeah, I did, yeah. Yes, yeah, so we're from, I'm from English Pen. Uh, And we are the founding centre of uh, Penn International, which is an international association of writers. Um, The organisation has been going for about 95 years. Is it really? Uh, Indeed. And um, founded in London, 1921, uh, by, among others, the the Nobel laureate John Galsworthy uh, and a woman called Amy Dawson Scott, who is a kind of social networker of her age. She was a very well-connected woman. She brought together all the writers of London uh, and they met to uh, to discuss writing because writing is a very lonely business. So it was nice to to dine with other writers. And very quickly, other pen centres were set up in other parts of the world, in in New York, in in Australia, in in Scandinavia, on the European continent. And very quickly, the writers realised that if they wanted to have a free flow of literature across frontiers, then they needed to defend freedom of expression because uh, you can't have censorship getting in the way of the free flow of literature. So from very early in, uh, in the life of Penn, Writers around the world have been defending the right of other writers uh, to write. So that's our motto, our strapline today is the, the freedom to write and the freedom to read. And that's what we campaign for and promote. Shall we set out some practical examples of your work Sure. So um, the international campaigns, uh, we're fighting for writers who've got themselves in trouble with the authorities. I mean, (laughs) that's putting it mildly. Um, We're just doing a campaign at the moment for um, Ashraf Fayyad, who is a Palestinian poet who has been sentenced to death in Saudi Arabia for essentially what he's written for his, um, his, his radical views. 
There's another Saudi Arabian blogger we do a lot of campaigning for called Araif Badawi. And our members go to the Saudi embassy every month to hold a vigil on behalf of him. He's in prison for 10 years, has been sentenced to a thousand lashes, all for setting up a blog discussing liberalism. So that's the real hard end of the work we do, defending poets, uh, writers, journalists who have been uh, imprisoned or attacked or otherwise persecuted by people in power because of what they've written. Do you make moral judgments on who you support? And I'm I'm asking with the idea in mind that the examples there are clearly virtuous in some way, um, according to British ideals, talking about liberalism, for example. But if someone were to upset a regime by speaking about stuff that was uh, perhaps inconsequential or offensive Mm -hmm. to to our values, Mm -hmm. would you defend them? Do you defend them in the same way? Absolutely. The right to freedom of expression means nothing without the right to offend, without the right to say things that other people don't want to hear. So we certainly defend people who blaspheme. Uh, We certainly defend people who are considered uh, obscene. I think where most free speech campaigners, not just Penn, draw the line, is on direct, clear incitement to violence. Because at that point, the human right to free speech is bouncing against the human right to, to, to safety, the right to life. And that's, that's true of most, most free speech campaigners. That's where they draw the line, is, is that direct and clear incitement to violence. I know that you're used to doing uh, media interviews, and I'm sure you've dealt with these examples before, so some that come to mind that sound as though they'd fall under your aegis Mm. in terms of defence would be, for example, the protests of Westboro Baptist Church at soldiers' funerals or perhaps some of the Twitter trolls who uh, say appalling things to people but don't necessarily threaten some sort of criminal act. Exactly, and uh, one of the most interesting parts of my job is when I end up having to defend precisely those unpleasant people. So Penn has spoken out against the prosecution of people like Liam Stacey, uh, who a few years ago was prosecuted for tweeting racist abuse about uh, Fabrice Moomba, who's a a footballer who collapsed on the pitch. Uh, And more recently, a gentleman called Jake Newsom and another chap called Robert Riley, who made jokes about a murder victim in Leeds. These weren't direct threats. They were deeply offensive. And I um, I don't say that any of these men are fine, upstanding citizens. But we have to make a distinction between uh, bad taste jokes or saying anything in bad taste and directly calling for uh, and encouraging violence against someone. The reason being is that as soon as offence and upset becomes a reason for the state and the police to get involved in censorship... It sets a terrible example around the world and the authorities in Saudi Arabia will say, well, you guys are, are happy to, to legislate when your sensibilities are offended. So why can't we legislate when our sensibilities are offended? We just have different sensibilities and that kind of, that kind of relativism uh, is very dangerous because it, it leaves the door open for um, for these um, quite despicable regimes, I have to say, in other parts of the world to to abuse people under the name of culture and protecting morals or protecting values, whereas really they're just using their power to suppress dissent. And that seems a very clear-cut example. But it's quite clear that sentencing somebody to jail and being whipped to beyond an inch of their life is an appalling punishment. What about the defence of the right of an author to, for example, stage their work? And perhaps this brings us back to London. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. The um, part of free expression is not just um, being able to say what you want at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park or wherever... It's also the right to write and the right to, as you say, stage your work, put on a play. And it's also the right of an audience to hear what a speaker has to say 
and to read as well. It's it's that exchange of information that, that gives freedom of expression its power and its meaning. What you alluded to was a play in in this country called Homegrown, which uh, was due to be staged in London earlier this year, a play put on a commission by the National Youth Theatre. Unfortunately, it was cancelled. Now, the reason it was cancelled is actually slightly opaque. We've never quite got to the bottom of the reason why the National Youth Theatre decided to to pull the plug on the production so close to its uh, its its opening night but the play dealt with very difficult issues and it had uh, young people minors <laughs> legal minors <laughs> it's the national youth theater after all uh, performing and discussing issues of terrorism and extremism and the prevent strategy that the government uses, a controversial strategy, I might add, to try and crack down on extremism. And the fear was among, I think, the police and among, I think, the uh, the management of the theatre uh, was that the play itself could be considered extremist or wasn't sufficiently... Uh, didn't sufficiently explain that e- <laughs> the extremism it was discussing was bad. I'm saying I think, I'm conjecturing. It's very frustrating for me to have to talk about Homegrown because I haven't seen it, because no one's seen it, because the play was cancelled. You, know, you the, haven't read the script. The, 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 the script is, has yet to be published. Um, I hope that uh, the the playwright and the director get a chance to stage it somewhere so that you and me and the people of London can make up their mind about whether this play was indeed uh, in somehow condoning extremism or not sufficiently condemning extremism. I suspect, actually, um, given what we heard from the, the... given the dismay that we heard from the, the cast, there was 100 people in the cast that the message was far more subtle than that and that the difficulties and the ambiguity uh, and the confusion that young people uh, feel uh, was, um, w- w- was dealt with in the play and one would hope that would have come out through the art. So there was this complex issue, people were tackling it, but at the last minute, everyone was foiled <laughs> in the discussion. The conversation was, was stopped by a decision to pull the plug. There's not legal, formal censorship. We need to be clear on, on this, actually, with Homegrown, in that the creative director ultimately decided to pull the plug on a play at his, at his theatre. So it can't be said that the state censored the play. No, one could say that it was um, a, a commercial decision, for it, example. It, it might be a commercial decision. It might be a creative decision because free speech also incu- includes the right not to say something if you don't believe it or believe in it. So, so I'm, um, I'm a bit confused how you've got involved in this. Yeah, well, because our fear, our concern, is that the rhetoric that comes out of the government and the police about clamping down on extremism has created a culture of self-censorship where artists um, such as um, arts organisations like the National Youth Theatre are now confused and worried and cautious about where the line is before they will they will get in trouble for somehow promoting extremism and that's where a lot of censorship or self-censorship actually happens and we see this with our international work as well governments around the world like to keep speech laws a little bit ambiguous well that that term hate speech is Wide open. Um, Indeed. Hate speech is a a very good example of of an ambiguous term that could be used to to describe a lot of religious text. Uh, There are, going off on a little bit of a tangent, there are portions of the Christian Bible, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, that could be construed as inciting the murder of gay people, for example. Um, So is reciting St Paul's letters or the book of Leviticus 
hate speech. <laughs> Another example from literature, uh, once more into the breach, dear friends, is a famous, um, a famous speech written by Shakespeare. And uh, it is uh, um, Henry V. It could be an incitement to kill French people. <laughs> and what if uh, Muslim fundamentalists were reciting Henry V in Paris just now? We're, we're talking, you know, barely a week after the Paris attacks. Well, there's Islamists, fundamentalists. Um, yes, I, I, I beg your pardon. What if you know, it might be considered hate speech because it's a, clear, it's a clear attack on the French, isn't it? It's also great literature <laughs> and in its normal context is clearly not hate speech. And so you get all these kind of ambiguities where things that, that should so obviously be considered art or comedy or just public interest discussion over important issues like extremism are being discouraged. Uh, just a couple more examples of this. There was a gentleman, and I, I forgive me, I forget his name, um, at a university who w- was of Muslim heritage, and he was reading a book about terrorism because he wants to understand what's going on. He's studying the subject, the issue, and uh, because he, he displayed the outward signs, if you like, of being a, being a practising Muslim, his beard or his hat or whatever, he was reported to, to the police and was interviewed. Another young man, uh, and this happened in London, was discussing eco-terrorism, but he was discussing it in French, so the word terrorism <laughs> was sort of heard by the people overhearing his conversation. He was reported as well. And what does that do? You know, these people are now chilled. They're now discouraged from highly legitimate, important, necessary work because of a fear that has been created by our culture and exacerbated by the language from our politicians. So although there's no overt law saying do not discuss eco-terrorism, the chill on free speech remains. The big concern now and a big campaign for English Pen in the coming months is that some of this legitimate speech will will now actually be properly criminalised. The government are going to bring forward a new bill, a new uh, proposed legislation on tackling extremism. They're going to have something called extremism disruption orders, which, without actually being convicted of any crime, um, a person could be banned, you know, like an ASBO, they could be banned from speaking. Uh, what do you mean banned from speaking? Um, they, they, they will be declared an extremist and, and have an ASBO-style order slapped upon them, um, saying that they won't be able to speak in certain places, um, even if what they're saying it might be radical, it might be not particularly democratic, it might be a uh, fundamentalist. But nevertheless, uh, they won't be... Um, uh, if they're not advocating violence, we should be allowed to hear what they say. The reason it's really important for us to hear what extremists say, whether that's Islamic fundamentalists that we've talked about previously or whether it's uh, far-right groups like uh, the British National Party, it's important that we hear what they say out in the open so that we can challenge them, so that we can debate with them, so that we can change the minds of the people who are listening to them. If these kinds of groups are banned in the name of extremism or protecting the public peace, then that kind of speech just goes underground. It goes into closeted, secret little rooms where those people can't be challenged, where the views fester and and perhaps become even worse and the radicalisation becomes even worse. So it's essential that we know what people are saying, that we have an opportunity to debate with them and to, to change minds. So even... Let me, let me jump in there. What's your evidence for that outcome? In the back of my mind, I've got a closed society mm. where communication is entirely state-controlled, like mm. North Korea, for mm. example. I strongly doubt that Daesh cells are popping up in North Korea. Mm. Certainly, we can't hope and wouldn't, mm. um, I suspect, seek to control uh, the internet or or electronic mm. communication mm. to anything mm. like that ridiculous degree. But where's your evidence that if you push it underground, uh, what you describe will happen? 
Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I think it's it, this is the difficult thing. It's, it's we don't the, the nature of underground things is, is we can't see it happening. Well, how do you know that? Um, just by, if, if you don't cut the if you cut the communications, then uh, mm. you would avoid the problem to some significant um, degree. It, it may be the case that for some people uh, that does happen. Um, the the problem I think is not one um, some not the. Um, so not the, the problem. The the argument is not so much uh, a pragmatic one as as a moral one. Is how do we think these? Uh, how do we think our society should operate? And our society should operate by the free flow of ideas. Well, let me challenge this. Um, yeah, I know you've got yeah. kids. Let me ask mm. a, a deliberately mm. provocative question. Mm. Would you be as happy with uh, Daesh beaming their uh, Facebooky and tweety uh, craziness mm. into young people's impressionable young people's bedrooms? Mm. Would you be uh, just as happy for a middle-aged bloke in a chat forum to be chatting mm. to one of your kids? Maybe not committing a crime, yeah. but uh, perhaps going in a, a direction you wouldn't want. Would you defend that right? Um, I think I don't think it should be illegal <laughs> for a a person uh, of a middle-aged person <laughs> to participate in in a chat room aimed at younger people um i do think <laughs> that uh the people who operate those chat rooms uh can have their own editorial policy which excludes certain people. There's there's part of the right to freedom of expression, uh, freedom of association would include the right to to exclude. Um, so there's there well, is, that's there, the controls there, just there, surely. Well, well no, there's, there's there's a distinction between people forming groups for themselves. Um, you know, a group of women saying we want to get together to discuss domestic and violence, and we don't want men in our group, is a different thing from a public meeting where certain people are on public property or or funded with public money, for example. The point I was making about whether it's it's legitimate to suppress certain voices is a moral one, is that when, again, as soon as you have the principle that certain voices are, are unpleasant and should be dealt with by censorship rather than engagement and changing minds you again leave the door open for other kinds of and i uh, this is radio so you can't see me doing my air quotes extre- so called extremists um to be banned as well so nelson mandela was considered an extremist El- emily pankhurst and the suffragettes were considered extremists people who advocated gay marriage were considered extremists um, those kind of, the idea of votes for women was was appalling and ridiculous and so obviously wrong <laughs> to the people of the of the the nineteenth and and eighteenth centuries um, and, and the, all the centuries before that. and all the centuries before that so to start with it it is a, it is a, it's a moral case is that we as humans <laughs> uh, as as people in a um, yeah, we as humans should be uh, thrashing out our ideas in in public, and the state has a right to uh, uh, the state's a duty to protect its citizens. So it is right that it intervenes when violence is threatened. The state has a duty to maintain rule of law. So it is right that the state intervenes to avoid things like contempt of court and the state has a duty as i say for security so it's a it's right the state can compromise free speech for reasons of genuine national security so there are free speech is not a an absolute right i'm not saying that free speech must trump everything i'm not saying the classic the classic example is whether uh, whether you have a right to shout fire in a crowded theatre when there is no fire. Uh, the idea being that, you know, if you create a stampede in which other people will get hurt, do you have a right to, to, to endanger people in that way? Free speech uh, activists will say, will say no. Um, there are other rights. There is the, the right to privacy and a right to reputation. These are all accepted rights that people have. And the state and the civil law has a right to to, to intervene when when lies are told, 
about someone. It's right that there is a law of libel. You you it, you should be able to be sued if you tell a lie about someone. But you, you seem to be saying all this against uh, Western law, uh, British law, as opposed to, for example, Saudi Arabian law. Uh, yeah, it's because... Um, so you've, you've, you, free speech works because our, our system is right and other people's legal systems um, are wrong? I, I certainly, absolutely believe <laughs> that the, the European, uh, or shall we say Western, uh, laws in this regard uh, are better. But not... I'm thinking super injunctions, for example, not uh, not perfect by any means. No, certainly not perfect by by, by any means. And um, and where the law has gone out of balance, where the right to privacy and confidentiality has trumped all free speech considerations, and you mentioned super injunctions, um, where things that are in the it is legitimately in the public interest for people to to know about have been suppressed um then that's an that's an illegitimate use of the civil law to suppress free speech in the british context where there are a lot of laws and there are there is a lot of gray area many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So um, we're always having these these quite philosophical discussions about where the balance lies between um, freedom of expression and other rights like privacy or even the, you know, the right to religion. The problem with international uh, laws internationally <laughs> is that that subtlety isn't there, that the law is written so in favour of the established powers. There are blasphemy laws that establish and entrench and protect the right of the religious establishment. There are criminal defamation laws that um, protect the powerful pr- the president or the police or public figures from being criticised. One appalling thing, and this is uh, a very important part of English Penn's mission, is that often those laws were written by the British in colonial times. Um, A really good example of this is in India, where um, criminal defamation uh, and blasphemy laws are used to threaten free thinkers in India. And those laws were written by the British. <laughs> um, so there's could, this. Could you give this, an example of that? Um, a really good example was um, the author Arundhati Roy. She made some. Uh, she's an Indian citizen, of course. And a wonderful um, writer. And a wonderful writer, The God of Small Things, um, her famous book. She expressed some sympathy for the idea that Kashmir could be part of Pakistan, I think. Um, it was she, she made some comments about Kashmir that did not hew to the the Hindu nationalist line on on Kashmir, and so there became a concerted campaign to to have her prosecuted under criminal defamation laws, including public officials saying, yes, this should happen. Thankfully, enough people, including uh, pen members from around the world 
protested and stood in solidarity with Arundhati Roy and the threatened prosecution never came to to pass. But there have also been cases, again, in India where books have been withdrawn from sale, where Hindu nationalists, Hindu fundamentalists, are now um, saying that certain books about the history of Hinduism cannot be read in India because they offend the the established uh, consensus on, on, on Hindu mythology and, and theology. And these are all, these blasphemy laws and, and criminal defamation laws are, are things that have been on the statute books of India since, uh, since colonial times. Because the people in power, once they get into power, uh, find those laws very, very useful. So a big part of English Penn's work and indeed the work of our colleagues at Penn International is to, is to campaign for the abolition of these anti-free speech laws wherever we find them. Another quick example, Thailand has very strict les majeste laws, which basically means the crime of offending the king. And we only abolished our own version of those laws in 2009. They'd not been used for, for decades, but they nevertheless existed in dead letter law on our, on our statute books. And so the British um, and the Europeans and the Americans, before or well, as we go preaching the values of free expression around the world, need to keep our own free speech laws as strong as possible. And that's a big part of what English Pen does. I'll be coming back to the subject of keeping our own house in order in just a moment. We're going to take a break. We will be coming also perhaps to talking about the ability of all voices to find their way into the national news. If you want to get your news delivered to you in a fresh and concise fashion, you might consider The Week magazine. Here's some information about our sponsor. The Week magazine is a concise, refreshing and balanced take on the news from the past seven days. Taken from over 200 print and online sources, we give you the best news, comment and opinion from the UK and overseas, bringing you up to date with everything you need to know. What's more, you'll also get the lighter side of the news, with the latest arts, people, food and drink, travel, properties and much more. Available in print, digital or both, it's the perfect solution for anybody who wants an intelligent and independent view of what's going on in the world. Don't just take our word for it. Get your first issue for free. Sign up at www.theweek.co.uk forward slash Londonist. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and with me Robert Sharp, the communications manager at... English pen. I just wanted to, to check in with you, really. We've taken a slightly hotter style of interview than we have when wandering around a museum, which is strange because I fundamentally believe very strongly in freedom of speech, of course. Do you find yourself on the end of hostile interviews very much? Not really hostile interviews because it's usually journalists who I'm talking to who, who I sort of <laughs> who agree with me anyway. If you become a journalist or a radio journalist, you're usually quite pro-free speech anyway. Of course, every time we put out a statement, uh, we get a lot of angry tweets. I've criticised on this podcast already Christian fundamentalists, Hindu fundamentalists, <laughs> Islamic fundamentalists. Listener, I, I invite um, you to consider what those three have in common with each other. Is there something that the world should be avoiding? Um, uh, absolutely, but then um, you know maybe it's a it's a religious um, thing. I, I I think I think faith that's not fundamentalist is very interesting. I think it it provides a very interesting sort of framework. English Pen is a literary charity, and the influence of the King James Bible, for example, on literature is is profound. And so I'm wary about throwing out the baby of of faith and uh, the 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 framework of the the sort of moral framework uh, and meaning that that faith can can give to people's lives i'm wary about throwing that out with the bathwater of uh, of fundamentalism and and the bigotry that often comes with religion there are plenty of ideologies (laughs) that are completely a-religious that are very happy to censor. Um, you mentioned North Korea at the start. We've done a lot of campaigning in, in uh, for political prisoners and people who are persecuted in Cuba, uh, for example. And then if you go back through through history, um, the you know the Nazis are sort of go to 
guys, but uh, the Nazis and the communists, of course, were were atheists, and uh, the pen members around the world spent a lot of time defending Jewish writers coming out of Nazi Germany, defending people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who were persecuted by the communists. So I don't think any ideology, <laughs> when fundamentalists grab hold of it, is, is immune from, from the tendency to censor. Because subtlety and grey areas are the enemy of fundamentalism <laughs> and strict ideologies... But that's where the most interesting conversations happen, in, in the grey areas, uh, in, in the subtleties, in the uncertainties. The idea of holding two perhaps slightly competing ideas in your mind at the same time, which humans are actually very good at. But uh, it doesn't seem to be allowed by the fundamentalists of, of, of any stripe. Personally, I, um, <laughs> I, I, I describe myself as a, as a non-practicing atheist because I talk as if God exists and I use a lot of religious language and religious imagery in my writing and my, my speech on a day-to-day basis. And it's only when at moments of, of deep crisis do I fall back to the crutch of atheism. That's just me. I'm being slightly facetious, and uh, um, but um, let, let me I'll, let me another s- another podcast. I think for that one. <laughs> <laughs> let me bring us to the subject of the national papers. I mean, in a way, as, as you say, with fundamentalism, a lot of what we've been talking about has really been black and white: suppress, mm. don't suppress, clear evils, if if you go for that word. But what about? In the UK, we've got the small range of national newspapers. We've yep. got a limited number of TV outlets, one or two dominant social media platforms. And um, with some of these, you could imagine that perhaps an overt censorship wouldn't go down very well and would be very difficult, if not impossible, to achieve. But is there a sort of a soft censorship? Is there a way that certain voices are habitually excluded? I think the internet has mitigated that a lot probably within the traditional media um, structures you might find some of the old prejudices not not overt prejudices prejudices but the kind of structural prejudices mean that certain voices are excluded what i mean by that is that if everyone in a newspaper is a white straight guy for example then you uh, you might end up hiring more white straight guys and asking other white straight guys to write for you. Um, well, what about if you if you suspect that your boss, the proprietor of the newspaper, only wants to hear stories about white straight guys? It doesn't really matter what you are. Then that's what you're going to deliver. Uh, indeed, and this this idea of a culture. If the culture is based on very traditional, old school values and worldviews and diverse voices aren't introduced into the conversation, uh, then, uh, yes, certain people will be excluded. Again, it's not formal state censorship, because there's no law saying that this person is allowed a voice and this person isn't. But uh, you nevertheless, it's it's a problem for for the wider discussion, uh, for the wider debate, for human progress, if um, minority voices, women's voices, for example, are not um, uh, you know are, are not given a platform. So I think uh, I think for starters, a a good editor uh, who wants to really get at a debate, who really wants to present an issue in the round should be mindful of diversity, diversity of the the people they interview, diversity of their journalists, the people they are commissioning to write stories and to to interview other people. I think that that's a good practice that that should be encouraged. And again, another part of English Penn's work is to point at that kind of of best practice. Because we're a literary organisation, we're actually talking more to publishers of books rather than uh, the media in the first instance. So one of the most fantastic uh, programmes that English Pen has is a translation uh, programme. We fund the translation of world literature into the English language. And we encourage publishers to take a look at writers in translation we point out to publishers with evidence of our research that readers 
are very happy to read work in translation. And we get through that program, we inject new voices, diverse voices into the publishing scene, into the British literary scene. We drew attention to the fact that not very many women authors' books had been put forward to the program. And the publishers, I don't know how it happened, but it wasn't through any overt affirmative action. It was just by talking about the disparity, by that that particular lack of diversity. This time around, we've got complete gender parity, not through any quota system, not through any policy, but purely because publishers were putting forward their best writers and uh, um, in, and we, we got more applications to our program, and we uh, had a, a very gender diverse uh, slate of, of books that we are supporting. So, through that program, English Pen is um, getting more women's voices out there, getting more voices from ethnic minorities, and getting more voices from elsewhere in the world, and increasing that the diversity of the literary ecosystem, if I can use that um, that phrase. So that's that's how we do it ourselves. But it's it's incumbent on on everyone to have those kind of conversations and that awareness. Yeah, and the, and the ecosystem here on the Farringdon Road is very interesting. When you take a look at the literary names on the board as you come in, yeah, uh, you're in amongst several other rather interesting uh, literary organisations. Uh, one or two that people will have heard of. How do you interact with the likes of Arvon and is it Apples and Snakes and one or two others? Indeed, this is a great building, uh, the Free Word Centre, where English Pen are based. I encourage you to subscribe to their newsletter as well as the English Pen newsletter, obviously. <laughs> um, and the Free Word Centre uh, management promote the, uh, I'm going to say, synergies. <laughs> Sorry. Well, that's all for this week. <laughs> Synergies is the only word, the, the collaborations. And so we do collaborate with Arvon on creative writing projects. We've uh, collaborated with uh, Apples and Snakes on spoken word projects. Um, and these kind of organisations, yeah, these, these fantastic literary organisations, again, very similar um, complementary projects of getting new voices into the literary sphere, getting people who might not otherwise have thought about writing or standing up and reciting poetry to express themselves so it's it's freedom of expression coming alive you know freedom of expression being exercised in the work that Arvon do and Apples and Snakes do and then uh, another organization based here is the Reading Agency who are encouraging people who might not otherwise have tried reading to do so to say hey have you thought about this kind of book or that kind of book as an alternative to just watching the television or you know playing games or whatever the reflexive flick through the phone is a difficult one to dodge (laughs) indeed although i don't i'm not too dismayed by people flicking through their phone because uh, messing about with their uh, you know on twitter or whatever because these people are communicating Uh, When you see someone on their phone, on the train, they look like they're doing something very solitary and selfish. But actually, they are communicating with other people and they're communicating with other people around the world. And it actually goes back to um, what you asked about in in terms of diversity and and about the media is what the... The internet enables so much more communication with so many different types of people. Um, I mentioned the Paris attacks earlier, and um, we can, it's a London podcast, we can think back to 7 7 uh, 10 years ago now. The best responses came from ordinary people, came through the internet memes. I'm thinking of the, the signs and the selfies and the, even the silly things like changing your flag to a tricolour after Paris. We've been doing that for 10 years. After 7-7, people were posting selfies and pictures of themselves holding up signs saying, I'm not afraid, holding up signs of them expressing solidarity with the Muslim community of London. And I think the internet really depressed the the negative impact. I won't say that 7-7 didn't have any impact. Of course it did. 
and it created fear. But I think the impact was depressed by ordinary people using their freedom of expression, their freedom to publish online to, um, to express um, messages of, of goodwill, to express solidarity, to acknowledge the grey areas that exist and to refute that idea of black versus white, us versus them, you're with us or against us, which is what the terrorists want. They want to sharpen the contradictions. They want to... Um, they want to cause the British people and French people to turn against uh, their fellow Muslim citizens. And lo and behold, the politicians are by and large totally buying into that, totally dancing to the tune that these terrorists are, are playing. And it is individuals with their Facebook accounts, with their blogs, with their podcasts, with their Twitters, with their Insta- Instagrams, who are refuting it, who are, who are pushing back. The Sun yesterday published a quite an unpleasant and I think the consensus is inaccurate uh, headline about one in five Muslims supporting ISIS, which the methodology was was very quickly refuted. And people began satirising it on, on, on Twitter as a way of uh, showing the world that actually we're not all buying into this into this divisive rhetoric. Yes, yeah, speaking of divisive rhetoric on this subject, would-be President Trump has trumped every other politician, yeah. I think, by not disavowing the idea of Muslim Americans being required to carry a Muslim ID. And have a look online if you haven't come across uh, this one, because a lot of Muslims uh, in America have obliged him by sending in their ID, including sheriff's badges and faculty physician (laughs) ID and so forth. Actually, one of the most divisive things that I saw, it was was very casual. It seemed very British and fluffy and friendly in a way. And that was what made me rather worried by it. It was on a discussion show on the TV. And there was a, a panel up the front answering questions. And a Muslim in the audience had asked a question. And the host came back to the Muslim and said, what do you think of ISIS? And I thought that's that's really doing all the work there that Daesh could want done for them. Anyway, we have to move on. And I just wanted to actually close by asking you with your campaigns, how, how long have you been in the job, by the way? I've actually been doing this for like six years, nearly seven years. So with all the campaigns that you've been involved with there and the people that you've been campaigning on behalf of, I wondered if I could strip away the you that spends uh, so much of your time, and you you speak incredibly passionately and incredibly well. I can tell you're used to talking about the work that you're doing. I want to get behind that part and get to the you that arrives home at the end of the day and has to decompress. You're here in a professional capacity. Um, What about Robert Sharp with his his slippers on and his cup of cocoa, thinking back on the day um, and maybe thinking about somebody else out there in the world who is being touched by what Robert Sharp's work did that day? Who comes to mind? Um, one where one gentleman that I actually felt particularly sort of connected to was a blogger called uh, Ali Abdulimam, uh, who's from Bahrain. And during the uh, 2011, I think it was, he um, he was protesting. You know, there were Arab Spring protests in Bahrain, as there were elsewhere in the Middle East. And uh, he disappeared off the radar. He there was a very sort of cryptic tweet, and then he he disappeared. Uh, he went completely dark. And um, I spent a lot of time in the days that followed sort of looking over his tweets to, to find any clue of, of where he'd been. And it was, it was because he was a blogger, because he was the same sort of age as me, uh, the fact that he had disappeared and that his Twitter had signed off near the police station in, Bar- in central Bahrain... Um, I think you know. The, uh, I, I remember. I remember with my pipe and my slippers, um, thinking long and hard about that after after the day had done, and for you know the rest of the the rest of the day, you know, sort of on my phone, sort of sending frantic messages about where this guy had gone. And even though he wasn't a, a sort of main campaign for Penn, I, I sort of kept track of of any mention of him in the press and was delighted when it turned he it turned out he'd got asylum here in the UK <laughs> and so uh, that because he was a blogger I, I particularly identified with him I've not met him yet Ali if you're listening come and have a coffee at the Free Word Centre I mean he's he does a lot of activism now for Bahrain 
But the thing that strikes me actually about all the writers that we campaign for is actually the big difference between me and them, which is their bravery that borders on madness. It's quite shocking and uh, disconcerting that in the face of death threats, in the face of life sentences in prison, these men and women will say what's on their mind anyway, knowing the consequences. And I don't think that I actually have that in me. I think if I was told to shut up by a man with a gun, I probably would. And I think most people are like that. You, dear listener, listening to the Londonist podcast, most of you would cower behind your sofa as I would. And we really need to celebrate those strange people who speak when everyone else is silent. And the six years, that's the thing I'm really struck by in the six years working for for English Pen is that these people in every culture, in every language, start cropping up. The desire for free speech is not a Western invention. Uh, Lu Jiabao, the Nobel Prize winning uh, laureate in China, it's, that's a, it's a Chinese value. He is practicing his free speech and he's been put in prison for it. It is Chinese free speech. <laughs> Raif Badawi and Ashraf Fayyad I mentioned in Saudi Arabia. These are, these are Muslims uh, or Muslim heritage at least. Um, Muslim culture, uh, uh, historical culture. And they are demanding free speech for the people of Saudi Arabia and the people of Palestine and the people of the Middle East and the people of Islam. It, free speech is an Islamic uh, value. And that goes for the Hindus, for the atheists, for the Buddhists, for the French, for the Germans, for <laughs> the Argentines, <laughs> uh, for everyone. Free, freedom of expression is is. Uh, global human value and it's striking that you find people willing to stand up for that right in every country and culture well Robert Sharp with a very abrupt close thanks very much and, and listener we've gone on a little bit longer than we usually do and we did that because we can even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.